This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramau-Ramos, and I am one of your hosts on the channel. And if you've heard my voice before, you might know that I am interested in, among other things, Qing history. And the book that this podcast is all about, The Board of Rights and the Making of Qing China by McCabe Kelleher, is a really great example of what rich, focused, archivally informed Qing history looks like. This came out in 2019 with the University of California Press. And this book is all about, as you might have been able to tell from the name, the Board of Rights, one of the six boards in the Qing government. This was the board in charge of rites, ceremonies, and rituals. And as McCabe explains in the book, this is a board that has not attracted a lot of attention from scholars precisely because it was in charge of rites, ceremonies, and rituals. These are the kinds of things that historians tend to dismiss and to actively look beyond. Modern as we are, we sometimes think of ritual as being unimportant, especially in the working of government. But as this book explores, ritual was essential in the Qing And it was particularly essential in Qing state-making in the early years, from the 1630s to the 1690s. This book explores and unpacks this early period, looking at how the Qing state grappled with the challenge of how to establish authority, how to construct legitimacy, and how to secure compliance. And it also looks at how the answers to these challenges were found in ritual. These rituals, once found, were changed and shaped and formed and finally institutionalized, and this book effortlessly takes its readers through this process. Not only does this book show a different side of Qing state formation, this is also a book rooted in some fabulous sources. It is a book of the archives built on Chinese and Manchu language court records, memorials, regulations, edicts, and legal codes. And this is also, as you might imagine, a book that has some really beautiful readings of specific rituals, readings that make it clear that every part of these rituals, from who sat where, to who did what, to who wore what, really mattered. And in general, this is a book that invites us to think about the importance of ritual, not just for the Qing, but for other early modern states as well. The problem that the Qing faced, how to construct a system of domination, was not a uniquely Qing problem, and they were certainly not the only state to reach to ritual as the solution. So even if you don't work on the Qing, I hope you seek this book out, because it has a lot to offer anyone who works on the early modern world, empire building, statecraft, institution formation, and of course, 
clothing. And if you want to know how clothing fits into the picture, uh, keep on listening to my conversation with McCabe, where we talk about clothing, ritual, and the book as a whole, and also how McCabe came to the field, which is another really fabulous story. So with that, I hope that you enjoy the conversation that follows. I'm here today with McCabe Kelleher to talk about his new book, The Board of Rights and the Making of Qing China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, McCabe, and thank you for taking the time to talk today. I'm thrilled to be here. Great. So we're going to start at the beginning uh, with your beginning. So could you talk a little bit about how you got into the field? What brought you to Chinese history and how did you become a historian of the Qing in particular? I In college, I took a class on the Analects the Confucian Analects. And the whole course, we read the Analects, different uh, translations. And this is before uh, I had any competency in literary Chinese, so I wasn't able to read, read the originals. But this, this professor guided us through uh, these different readings of the Analects and some of the commentaries on it. And we read it however many, however many hundreds, hundreds of times. Uh, and if, if you've ever read the Analects, it's a very confusing little book, kind of uh, full of these little sayings uh, which can be rather mon- mundane and not and not make much sense outside of any other context. But the more you get into it, like the more fascinating it becomes, and trying to, to to make sense and see how it holds together as a complete orientation to life. So this became very fascinating because it was something that was so different from anything that I had previously been accustomed to or or acquainted with, and certainly much different, say, than the than the the, the metaphysical and uh, social system of of Christianity. So I became very curious about how this type of uh, this, this this system of Confucianism worked, the uh, the orientation that it that it proposed to the universe and to human society and to to our interpersonal I- in interactions. And I wanted to continue sort of getting into this and understanding uh, what it what it meant and, and how it worked. So this began my path into. Uh, uh, begin taking taking Chinese and uh, Chinese language, as well as to exploring other aspects of Chinese literature and history. Uh, and so, when I graduated college, uh, this is at, at UMass Amherst, that there was this program uh, to spend a year in China studying Chinese. And so, being whatever nineteen twenty or twenty years old, not knowing what else you're going to do with your life. Uh, it seemed as good a choice of any as to go off to China and, and and spend a year studying Chinese. So that's what I did. So I went off to went off went, went off to China, and after uh, after being there for a year and acquiring a little bit of competency in the language, that I wanted to stay, and I thought the best way to do that was to uh, was to uh, to begin to to work there. And I and I began to do that as a journalist. Actually, I went to I went to Taipei, uh, where it's easier to live and, and easier to get visas, and also to 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 work as a journalist. And this gave this. So my reasoning was behind doing this. Besides uh, being able to 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 exercise and market the skill that I had about uh, somewhat of an understanding in Chinese culture and somewhat of a competency in Chinese language, was also to understand China uh, and begin to try to understand. 
how how it worked. And as a journalist, this gave you the opportunity to stick your nose in, in everything and to ask questions uh, of people at, at all levels of society, from the the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, I think the highest up I got was interviewing the vice the vice president of Taiwan, uh, Lu Xiolian at the at the time. But then all the way down to your taxi drivers and 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 small business owners and you know, funeral parlors and and in uh, in in all these aspects uh, of society. So I found that, that that was very exciting. But but after doing this for a number of years. Oh, there are two problems arose. So the first is as a journalist that you're always chasing the next story. So there's never time to stop and really get into a to to, to get into something uh, to 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 take more time to explore what are the underlying issues or even the structure of the of the society. But then the second problem is even if you did, were able to take that time, that you didn't necessarily have the tools to begin to understand. Or to begin to, to 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 ask the right questions, or to put to, to to put things together, and what that necessitated was a more prolonged study. So what I and so what and, and of course being in China uh, and 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 Taiwan, one of the key key issues was always was always historical that you read about it in the in the op ed pages and commentaries that you see uh, Paul. Uh, politicians or officials making references to the deep, deep, deep Chinese past. And so there was this, these undercurrents of Chinese history that were always there, which, uh, which took time to be able to understand and get into. Now, the key issue that I always ended up reporting on were cross-strait relations, that is relations between China and Taiwan and both sides would draw upon the deep Chinese past in order to make the argument of why Taiwan was or was not part of China and why China could or could not claim sovereignty over tai- Taiwan. And wanting to understand this deeper, I took, I, I, I took a step back from, from, dur- from my journalism uh, and began to get into this issue. And this resulted in, in two little books time Chinese history, which were written, they were written more for myself to try to get a grasp of what was the, the, the history of relations between China and Taiwan and the people, uh, the original people on Taiwan, and then the people who came over to, to Taiwan from China, mainly in the, in, in the 18th and, and 19th centuries. The, uh, uh, but once I, once I, once I had done, had done that, I decided that this was uh, it, it it was very rewarding, but also it was the kind of study that I wanted to pursue rather than than in journalism. And I wanted to get more into the investigation uh, of Chinese history and the structures of Chinese society. And and so I decided that the path was to go back to graduate school to be able to to, to be able to study this. Uh, and so that's. So, so, so that's what I, so that's what I did. I, 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 from Taiwan, I applied to graduate schools in the U S and, and I, and I came back and, and, uh, and began my, began my, my formal academic career. Very, very cool. But why, how did you end up in the Qing then? So initially I came back to study 20th century China. I, I was, my, my eye was mm-hmm. on, my eye was on contemporary China. And I thought in order to get an understanding of these changes, which were happening uh, rather drastically since in the reform period in, in China, uh, you know, beginning in, beginning in the eighties 
and, and, and 90s that we had to understand sort of where this was coming from in the 20th century. And I chose to go to George Washington University initially, in the, and I went into the PhD program to, to study with Edward McCord, who's a, a, a fantastic scholar and, uh, and preeminent ad, uh, advisor. Uh, and he also has sort of one foot in the policy area of being in Washington, but he's also uh, a very competent scholar of the Republican period. So I came back to study with him at, at, at GW. And as I began to craft ideas for a, a, a dissertation and a sustained study that I, that I thought, well, in order to, un- I found that in order to understand 20th century China, I had to go back into, uh, in, 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 into the Qing. So what was happening before the Republican and, and, the, and the PRC period to get a sense of what China was changing from, what, was, what were the remainders that were continuing to influence the 20th, influence of 20th century and then up, up, up into, up into today. And so to do that, you had to study, had to study the Qing that I thought that Manchu was going to be important to do that because the, this is after the the new Qing history, of course, which had showed us that, that studying the, the Manchu language and understanding ethnicity, the Manchus as a, a separate culturally and ethnically from, from the Chinese was was key, and so Ed encouraged me to apply to Harvard uh, as the place to to go to to study the Qing and and to study Manchu. Uh, and so I did, and so I so I transferred programs, and I and I went to Harvard with the intention of looking at the late 18th and the early 19th century, so the beginning of the end of the Qing. And I thought that is so. This to, to do this, this would set up this basis to understand 20th century, to understand why the Qing, why the Qing was collapsing, what, uh, what institutions began to fall apart and how those then continued and remained into the, into the 20th century. But there mm-hmm. I was, and I began to get into this. And then so to begin to, so to understand the end of the, the beginning of the end of the Qing, that I realized you have to understand the beginning of the Qing. So what was, what was it transforming from in, into? So I kept getting pushed back to the mm-hmm. beginning, uh, essentially. And so then we have, so then I had to go go back to to, to understand the the structures of the creation of the of the Qing state, its main developments and and uh, and operations in the 18th century, and in hopes then of of moving 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 forward. Uh, so that got me pushed back pushed back into the Qing. And then there's the one, yeah, one step one step back at a time. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> the by. So yeah, of course, like being in the in the East Asian language and civilizations program, where you have colleagues who are working in early China, uh, and so like my 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 friends and cohort, like Vincent Long and, and Michael Ng, used to kid me that uh, I'm going to end up back in the Zhou. Right, you got to you got to go back to the beginning of time if you're going to understand anything, McCabe. <laughs> But the uh, but I know I thought like so, uh, but I found like the that the Manchus the, the Manchus is a good cutoff because here's this outside group who so you have the fall of the Ming and that's that implodes and you have this outside group come in and reestablish order. Uh, it isn't just this continuation of of one emperor after another that you have order collapsing. It's reconstructed. So then it's then it's to look at how that was reconstructed, why decisions were made in order to. Keep similar institutions, replace them with replace them with new ones, and how then this led to the development of empire. Very cool. So you ended up here, not in the Joe. 
Um, (laughs) And so for your PhD project and this book, the book we're talking about, The Board of Rights and the Making of Qing China, it did begin life as your PhD dissertation. Um, But the book doesn't, it's not, you know, I did look at your dissertation and the book is a little different. Um, As you say in the preface to this book, there are some, there's some divergence and significant development between the former, the dissertation, and the present work, the book. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. What, what did that sort of divergence and and development process look like? Yeah, yeah. The, um, so the, the, the origins of the, PhD of the dissertation, this, this this topic of the of the Board of Rights uh, wasn't predetermined. That I didn't think uh, if I go to back to, to understand the structure of the Qing, then I've got to look at the Board of Rights. So this also conflated with my interest in understanding the nature and the logic of the Chinese state and, and society. And so this then also goes back to my initial interest in, in Confucianism, or let's say this initial attraction to, to Confucianism. And at the core of the Analects and Confucius idea, of course, is, is ritual or in Chinese li. And, and you know, simply that, that, that all human relations should be mediated to Li and the proper practice of Li would then help organize society, which then was, which is, is, becomes in line with the cosmos. And then you have, and then you have harmony. Um, so then the question arises, how do you, how do you make a society out of this? Or what would a, what would a political, social and economic structures look like based on this type of orientation to the universe and, and, and to life. And so I became very attracted to those studies on Li and on, on ritual in the, China, in the Chinese state, such as uh, James Hevia and Angela Zito. Richard Smith was, was, was a huge influence to me early on as well. And thinking about what is the logic of, of of these ritual practices and how does this relate to the to the state? You know, as we know that uh, Europeans, you know, McCartney, uh, of course, and then throughout the the, the nineteenth century, and early study or uh, early scholars and observers or interlocutors of China would dismiss this ritual, dismiss as being superstitious, as not important to the operations of the state. Uh, this kind of hanging on of traditional tra- uh, traditional society, and this has much influenced our, our, our scholarship. We've come to privilege uh, what we deem more important things like uh, resource extraction or the ability to make war, the organization uh, uh, organization of a uh, of a bureaucracy, the ability to to send messages and stuff. All that's all that all that's extremely important. But it's also very much premised on a. Uh, I think on, on a European understanding of uh, of uh, of the state and the operations uh, of the state at the dismissal of things like ritual, and so then it's how to how to understand how to understand ritual, and I think these 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 other scholars like that that I named, as well as a number of the Chinese scholars, like uh, have. Um, have gotten in have gotten into this and they showed us the logic of ritual they showed us why it was important to the operations of the late imperial chinese state there's there was always uh there was a i always found that there there was something there was something missing from from the explanation there was like at the moment of showing the connection of the operation of ritual in the state that we would often be reverted back to uh, a language of theory, equating, say, ritual to power, 
as uh, as like the ritual scholar Catherine Bell uh, wrote two books wrote two books about, uh, or the quotation of other scholars of uh, of, of social theory uh, about how power works and about these these symbolic forms of power and whatnot, uh, which I think is is all true, but it also left something wanting in trying to understand actually what ritual was doing, how it was an integral part of the state. The consequence of uh, of that I came to I, I came to see was that it always separated the real workings of government from these different the the different symbolic forms uh, or the, the the ceremonies or 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 the ritual. And so if you look at uh, you look at studies on uh, I, some on some on the Qing, but it, it's more evident in looking at studies on of the role of ritual in the Ming or the Song or the Tang, where you see the the there's power has been laid down. That the operations of the uh, uh, of politics have been settled. There's a struggle among actors over what the state is going to look like, how the lines of power are going to be drawn, and then ritual is slapped on top of that. So it becomes something like the furniture. The house is built, you move the furniture in, and then away you go. So the ritual then is being used in order to legitimize rule or to set up uh, to, to, to set up construction of, of authority. But if we really if we really take these the, this theory seriously, that ritual is power, then there shouldn't be a separation there. It shouldn't be something extraneous, just like the furniture that you come and you move around or you move out or you, or you, or you switch out, that it has to be intimately tied up with the workings of the state. And I think Hevia begins to get that, when he, to get at that. When he's talking about the uh, the the beanly, you know, the guest the guest ritual with uh, with McCartney, but for me, then there was always a question in my mind of like, you know, how does this how, how does this emerge? How does it actually sit with the uh, with with the actors as it's as it's forming? Uh, and so to do that, then you had to go back go back to the beginning. But anyway, so I had all these questions that were running around and. Uh, so this is back to the to, to, to the Orin story. I've came up with this mm-hmm. idea of, of of the board of rights. So this interest in ritual, this interest in the state, uh, this 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 sort of intuitive rejection of Euro of Eurocentrism in trying to understand China. And one year, Jeff Snyder Ranke, uh, who teaches at College of Idaho, and he wrote this book about rainmaking. He was he was spending a year at Harvard, and I ended up spending a lot of time with him. Uh, because I don't know, he takes pity on graduate students and would hang out and buy us, <laughs> buy us beers and stuff. Uh, and all around great guy. And, and so we would talk, we'd have these long conversations about these things. And one day sitting at the, uh, the, 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 the coffee shop in the design school, was it Bajas? Mm-hmm. Uh, Bajas. Where we, I met Jeff there for coffee and he said, uh, said, McCabe, I have the perfect dissertation topic for you, the board of rights. You need to do, you need to do a study about the board of rights. And, uh, and and I thought, yeah, that's fantastic, right? So because here it sort of married everything that, that this idea of ritual, and here was this government organization, the Board of Rights, uh, this minister level organization in the Qing government, which was responsible for ceremonies and rituals and and doing all do, doing all these things and integrating with the state. Uh, so how did it work? What did it do? How was it integral in the operations of the of the Qing state? So I decided that that that's going to be. The uh, the dissertation topic. That so first it all started in the Chow House. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so that was going to be the t- so that's the topic. So the first summer, 
I, I go off to Taiwan to try to to, to, to to look in archives and to poke around to see how am I going to begin researching the border rights? How am I going to begin to to do a study of this of this organization? And when one goes to Taiwan, you go to the National Palace Museum Library. And in the National Palace Museum Library is the, the staple of the, of the library and all of Chinese studies, Professor Zhuang Jifa, uh, who was the former archivist there and he's long since retired, but he still goes there without fail every day from eight to four. And, and he sits in the library uh, pulling documents and doing, doing his, his own research. And if you don't go seek him out, he will come seek you out. And so one day I was in there and, and he pops out of the stacks and he says, who are you? What are you, what are you doing? And, and I tell him, I say, well, I'm interested in the board of rights. And he becomes very animated. He's like, that's, that's wonderful. The board of rights. No one's ever done any work on the board of rights. That's a fantastic topic. And he goes and he pulls all these, these documents for me out of the, uh, he tells the archivist to pull all this stuff out. Says this guy's working on the board of rights. These are all the things that he needs to look at. Uh, so I thought, oh, this is this this is wonderful. There's all this materials I have to look at. So so he sets me up. So for the next week or so, I, I spend reading all these materials uh, on the board of rights that he's that he's given me. And I come back to him at the at the end of this this week or two weeks, and I, I say, Professor Zhuang, uh, I don't know what to make of this. This is the, the the board of rights seems to be everywhere. It's in it's in ceremonies and rituals and in the in in the localities overseeing drinking ceremonies. It's in education. It's in foreign affairs. It's in, it's in, it's in dress. It's in communications. It's in the establishment of, and, and maintenance of hierarchies and orders and personnel. It's in, in buildings. Uh, and he's, and he, and he says, ah, now you know why no one has ever studied the board of rights before. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought he was playing this joke on me all along, right? But it was too late. Like I'd already been captivated by this topic, and I'd spent all this time looking at these materials. So I was like, "No, I'm determined to, determined to do it." So, so uh, you know, away I went, still trying to trying 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 to understand this. Uh, but it became clear that I really had to begin at the beginning when the Board of Rights was established in 1631, uh, and so that began the that became the the focus of the inquiry is why did the Qing set up the board of rights. It was part of like the, 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 the six boards, uh, which was modeled on the Ming administration, but still, you know, why at that time did the Qing, this is actually before they became the Qing, but, but Hong Taiji as the, uh, as the, uh, as the ruler decided he's going to set up the, the six boards. And of course the board of rights is going to be part of that. So why did they make this decision to set up the board of rights, part of the six boards? And initially what did they want it to do and how is it going to work? And so this became the, 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 the inquiry that, um, that later developed into the, into the dissertation and then turned it in the book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Very cool. I think that's a great origin story with some really great figures, <laughs> some some fantastic moments there. And you've you've taken us really then 
into the book itself. And you've really, I think, very neatly set us up with chapter one, um, which is where you introduce us to the first of the three interrelated arguments that sort of run throughout the book. And you've really just summarized it there. So I'll summarize it again. Um, And here, the first argument is simply that there was an articulated system of social domination and political legitimization in the Qing, which we call ritual or rites, which, as you learned in that um, after going through those documents, was everywhere um, in the Qing. So great. So, and you mentioned uh, right in in your um, the last little bit of what you were talking about there. You mentioned Hong Taiji and his sort of setting up the board of rights. But before we get to that, um, I think we should just spend a little bit of time on chapter two because this is sort of before he is able to do that. This is um, the chapter on the Manchu ascendancy and struggles for power. And here you're looking at the very beginning of the Qing and ideas of political power that were in play when the Qing was sort of getting getting started. Um, And you point out here that there were two ideas in play. The Qing was either going to be a Manchu Khanate or it was going to be an expansive empire. And you stress that these were um, viable options. So even though the latter won out, even though they did end up creating an empire that conquered, held, and administered territory, that was by no means a foregone conclusion. And this chapter looks at the struggle that sort of plays out between these two ideas. And one, wondering if you could talk a little bit about the struggle, and in particular about the role that the junior relatives play, because these are figures that I had never heard of before. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about them, what we know about them, and how do they sort of fit into the political struggle? I wanted to draw this contrast between the the Qing tax office state, uh, which so I want to draw this contrast between the Qing tax office state and a either the a Manchu Khanate or a, a it could even be an agrarian society, say based on on lords mm-hmm. of service with a rather weak with a rather uh, weak weak ruler. And you see this contrast hap- being being played out throughout Eurasia in the early modern world, uh, even within within Europe. It'd be the contrast between say England and uh, England and France, where England you have a weak sovereign, uh, you have you, you have lords, serfs, and then this this these kinds of social property relations gradually begin to begin to change. Whereas in the contrast with France, you have a very strong sovereign that the uh, the the lords are rather weak, uh, and the serfs are able to maintain their property rights. So you begin to develop a tax office state where the where the uh, the sovereign is able to tax. The landholders, and that is the, the the peasants directly, and this is the model that the the Ming really uh, the, the the road that the Ming go down and and really develop, and then the the, the Qing will take to even greater greater conclusions. Uh, but there's a stark contrast between that and what the Manchus as these semi-nomadic or light agrarian villages, uh, you know, peoples living in northeastern Eurasia had. Uh, and, and so what was, so, so then, but we know, of course, that as the Manchus begin to organize, then they begin to conquer territory and then under Hong Taiji that they make this transition into that of the tax office state, uh, and, uh, the, 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 the Qing dynasty and, and eventually, uh, an empire, an empire. And so what, what is, what was that process of how that, of how that happened? 
there were struggles, of course, that not everyone decided like, oh yes, we want to be we want to be an empire now. We want to set up we want to set up a set up an emperor, and we're going to tax the peasants peasants directly, and we're going to establish this rule over them with this large bureaucracy, which is going to facilitate the 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 work the workings of that. It's it's debatable whether Nurhachi as the first you know, Qing, Qing ruler who began this enterprise of organizing the Jurchens, who would become the, the Manchus. It's debatable whether Nurhachi had such ideas or not. Uh, the best that we can say is that Nurhachi was a very capable military leader. He's also very savvy politically, and he was able to organize these peoples who were living in northeastern Eurasia, uh, as, well as, the, as well as the Mongols uh, next, next door. And uh, he began to set up something a- a- akin to uh, a a ruling order that would that would govern land and tax peasants. Although it's really it's it's really debatable whether they're taxing peasants, whether they just held land and made peasant serfs and then extracted sur- surpluses for that. Um, but all the while, even with Nurhachi, that his his sons and his relatives who were you know, effectively second in command, they were leading large large armies had different ideas about what the future of their operation would would look like and that came to a head when he died so he had he had a number of sons there were four there were three sons and then his adopted son and, and nephew uh, uh, the, uh, who succeeded him so his four succeeded him and Urhachi said you guys should rule jointly and, and make all your decisions together as soon as, and they all agreed to that. But as soon as he died, that that they um, they went to war again. They went to political war against each other, not not physical war. Um, and and Hong Taiji uh, emerged victorious in that and asserted himself as as Khan or or ruler, uh, subjugating the other political actors. So his his other his his two brothers and his and his cousin. Uh, how was he able to do that? And this is I go into I go into detail on this in the in the, in the second chapter. And it was largely by relying on his other relatives, his other brothers and sons, and the sons of, uh, or you know, and and his nephews, the sons of his other of his other brothers, by making them by making them promises, by exploiting divides and tensions between people and effectively building a very strong alliance. So Hong Taiji was also, he was very politically savvy in in, in this and allowed him to emerge victorious as, uh, as the Khan, but that didn't settle matters. And this is what's then really key to this tension, which is continues up until Hong Taiji's death, uh, is he's never really able to fully establish control uh, meaning that he never has complete command of uh, of policy and able to exercise his will as we might expect someone like Qianlong is able is able to, and at the crux of that are are the other imperial relatives, Hong Taiji's brothers and and and, and nephews and cousins. Uh, they are all still very independently minded. They have different ideas about what the about what the the operation should be. Uh, maybe even about what the state should look like, or most immediately, if there should even be a state, or or not. Uh, and the, there's times of where of where they defy him. That there's uh, there's 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 moments of close uh, they they come close to 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 physical violence between him and and his uh, and his relatives. Uh, and all through this, that 
it, it becomes very clear from the documentary evidence that, that, that ritual and ceremony, or what we call Li Yir and Manchu Dorolon, is instrumental in Hong Taiji's struggles for power. And we can get into this when, in, in talking about the, the, the other chapters. But what's clear is that the, the, the power is never settled, right? So that the, the idea of establishing the institutions, the, the lines of power, uh, and the organization of the state is never settled before the ritual is settled. And so that you see, this gets into the, 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 the second argument here, is that as the system of Lee emerges, that it does so in tandem with the uh, with the state and with the organization of of political power. Absolutely. And that does very neatly take us into the second argument and into chapter three, which is where we see, I mean, you just said that Hong Taiji was never able to um, fully assert his power. He was never fully in control, but he certainly tries uh, to make it look as if he is. At least this is how this chapter opens, chapter three. And this is probably my favorite chapter in the whole book, in part because of its dramatic opening. So you begin with here the description of the New Year's Day ceremony in 1632, where he's sitting at the very center of activities. As you say, he is symbolically assum- assuming the role of sovereign and concentrating attention, meaning, and activity on his person. And his brothers are sitting on either side on the lower elevation. And you point out here that this is a significant change to the ceremony, one that reflects the sort of political change that you outlined in the previous chapter. Because by this point, he has outmaneuvered his relatives and he's at a new position at the head of the imperial polity. Uh, His family members are being demoted then, both symbolically and politically. Um, But I love this chapter in part because of the ceremony, but also because of your uh, some of the details that you get into in the footnotes about the sources that you're using to tell the story about the changes made to the New Year's Day ceremony. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. How did you sort of uncover this part of um, the chapter? Yeah, in retrospect, it seems like only the kind of thing that you'd be able to do as a as a doctoral student, to be able to spend that much time <laughs> combing back and forth through the different sources and trying to map out how they were written and, and re, rewritten. The uh, yeah, so there's so there, there's this New Year's Day ceremony. Is this this happens mm-hmm. in 1632? And what I argue here is that this is this is the first time that this kind of New Year's Day ceremony took took hold or was practiced with such with such pomp and ceremony. It's the first time so Hong Taiji sits in the center that he mm-hmm. subjugates his the other three co rulers, supposedly co rulers, to inferior positions. Uh, and he has everyone come bow before him. And so he's the center of attention at the center of this New Year New Year's New Year's ceremony. Uh, and so the first order was to look back and to see what they did previously at other New Year's Day ceremony. Of course the Manchus practice some kind of New Year's Day ceremony, but it looked it looked much different than 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 this one. Uh, and but at the same time that it also wasn't quite like the Chinese Ming New Year's Day ceremony, although there were lots of traces and vestiges in that. So at the at the uh, so then so so why and what's going on here? How did this whole whole thing begin? Right. So it turns out after they established the Board of Rights, that the the vice president of the board the board the Board of Rights, this guy named Li Bolong, who we don't know anything about. Uh, this is one of the only. This is one of only two times that he appears in the documentary record. Uh, but what we can say is that he's 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 Chinese, 
he was clearly he was clearly educated and had some knowledge of the uh, of the Ming practices and of of Ming Ming rituals. And we know these guys are reading Ming. Uh, so even if like someone like him, like Li Bolong, is not part of the Ming government, that is to say that he surrendered to to the Qing, that we know that the the uh, the Qing the the Jin at the at this point uh, have access to to Ming texts like the like the Ming Huidian, which tells you how to run the government. Mm-hmm. So Li Bolong is probably reading reading this text, and so and he tells Hong Taiji says this is not how you run a New Year's Day ceremony. What you have to do is put yourself at the center. And have everyone bow to you, and you're supposed to be at the head of the New Year's Day ceremony. So he's he's clearly uh, helping inform ideas about how this is supposed to take off. Hong Taiji finds this very expedient in order to elevate himself as the uh, as the ruler, uh, and so he sets about he, he sets about doing uh, doing so. But then the interesting thing is that you find. So there's then there's a, there's there's some Chinese records on this, but then you have all this this Manchu documents. And the interesting thing is like looking back at the Manchu documents that you find that they they were they were edited and, and re-edited in order to emphasize certain things in this in this New Year's Day ceremony, uh, and so that the editors. I th- I think it's clear that after the fact, and you could tell by the different endings of the of the Manchu. Uh, which evolved after 16, 1636, um, and that the so like this post-1636 endings were used in order to edit the, the contemporary text from the, from the 1632 ceremony, went back and rewrit to emphasize the role uh, of, of Hong Taiji in this, in this ceremony and to make clear what was actually happening, that people were sitting at a lower elevation, that Hong Taiji was in the center, and that they would emphasize that they did this unlike in years years past. So how did how did I how did you see this? So there's a there's there are a couple of things on the on the document, the Manchu document itself, that you could uh that they were writing between the lines. So you could see the editing going on um after the fact. You know, in in later years, as they were collecting these documents and preparing to formalize them, you could see editors making notes on the page. Uh, but then the other thing is that they would cross things off with thick black ink, and, and it's often hard to read. And so I had to. So there, there, we had photocopies of a lot of this stuff. But I had the, I had the National Palace Museum in Taipei pull the original documents for me, which they were very reluctant to do. And I could only do so with the intervention of Zhuang Jifa. He went and yelled at the archivist for me. Um, <laughs> uh, and so we, so we pulled this thing up and we were able to see then at, uh, let us read behind what is crossed off, uh, turning the paper over, you get a sense of what's, but then also, you know, holding up to the light. And so you could mm-hmm. see what's, what's written un- underneath to be able to try to, to uncover the story of the rewriting, both of the, the, the enactment of the New Year's Day ceremony, but also the rewriting of it in order to emphasize, uh, Hong Taiji uh, as, as being elevated in the sovereign. Uh, what this tells us then it goes straight to the second argument is that the rituals are not set, nor is the lines of power set either. That Hong Taiji had not settled this struggle with his brothers over who was going to be sovereign, who was going to have command of policy, how the lines of power were going to be drawn from the the ruler to the uh, to the to the Manchu armies to to the administrators. Those struggles were still very much alive, and the. 
Hong Taiji was trying to use the ritual uh, and to assert his symbolic power to force people into certain kinds of political relationships uh, through the ritual act, then of which we know eventually become the political political reality. But this is still very much forming. The struggles for power are at work. The rituals are, are, are still forming. And then it becomes very clear through what's crossed off on the document about how that's working. Absolutely. And I, as you just sort of laid out there, one of my very favorite parts of this chapter is in the footnote where you point out that these edits that you're looking at are not legible in the reproductions. Um, so you did have to get someone to go and uh, get the originals for you, which is someone who spends a lot of time in libraries. I really appreciated. <laughs> I thought that was a great footnote. Um, so I, so there's a story behind this footnote. <laughs> I, uh, in the, in the dissertation chapter, which I sent to my advisor, Mark, Mark Elliott, mm-hmm. uh, and I made a big deal in the dissertation, like in the chapter text that I saw the original document and, and mm-hmm. this is what it said. And, uh, and Elliot, said to me, he says, well, why did you need to see the original if there's a photocopy of it? What's the big deal about this? I was like, all right, now I need to explain. You know, this mm-hmm. is why we needed to see the original one. So it was a hard, <laughs> hard one footnote. <laughs> great. Um, great. So we moved then to chapters four and five, and you just mentioned, you know, we're seeing the ritual sort of coming together and being constructed. And this continues in these chapters. Um, And there's a lot going on in these chapters. But in the interest of getting to the third section of the book, I'm just going to briefly summarize them. So in chapter four, you look at a number of rituals, um, including the ritual activities of court ceremony, uh, thrice monthly ceremony that affirmed and regulated interactions between emperor and officials. And you also look at worship done at imperial tombs, which sort of legitimize the emperor and his lineage. In chapter five, then, you look at how Qing political order was regulated beneath the level of the emperor. So you're looking at regulations for interaction among imperial relatives. You talk about, um, and sorry, and officials of various ranks. Uh, You talk about guidelines for clothing, rights that inform how different uh, actors of different ranks would greet each other, entourages, regulations about who fell where in ceremony lineups. And you point out that all of this created servants of the state, especially Uh, especially for imperial relatives, which is a group we're going to talk quite a bit about in the next chapter, chapter six. Uh, But before we get there, is there anything that you want to point out about these two chapters? Because I know that was a very brief summary of all the ceremonies and processions and fans and feathers and hats that go on in these chapters. There's a lot there, but if you had to pick out one thing, what, is there anything? I, so I think you captured it with like the details of, of, of that stuff. The key here, my, my inquiry was one, what did it mean to be emperor? When Hong Taiji decided he's going to, he's going to, he's going to be emperor. What did it mean to, to be emperor? How did you, how did you act a, as an emperor? And what was key here is that there was a, there, there was a transition. So even from, uh, from, uh, Nurhachi, who didn't really act like a, an emperor, uh, and Hong Taiji in his early years, who didn't act like what like an emperor, like like we might think of like Chenlong or, or, or somebody. Uh, and so, what did it mean to to be emperor? How did you interact with with your officials? What did it mean to to to, to, to sit in to sit in the throne and to preside over a a a a, a ceremony how did the how was the emperor then separate from his 
uh, from his officials. And in the immediate case, it's from the from the Bela, that is the like the 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 Manchu leaders of the uh, of the banners. What made the what made the emperor, that is the the sovereign, the Khan, different from from these guys? Why wasn't he just another leader of the Manchu banners? And at one point, when Hong Taiji is discussing this with some of his advisors, they say, "If you don't do these things, what are you?" Uh, you're you're just going to be another another leader of a Manchu banner, no different from the from these other guys. And so, then with with that in mind, how did they begin uh, setting up Hong Taiji to separate himself from them and and to become an emperor? And similarly, in the in the fifth chapter, it's what did the political order mean? How do these different administrative actors relate to one another? Uh, what did it mean to fit together into a cohesive political unit and to go forth to conquer and rule? Great. Great. So with that, then, um, now that we've sort of we're done with, with the second argument of the book, we get to the third argument in part three of the book. So on to chapter six. Um, and your argument here is that the system of ritual once formed, we saw the formation, and now it's going to be institutionalized and codified. And in this chapter, uh, you're really looking at how the regulation of imperial relatives was institutionalized. And with this focus, you drive home a point that you make elsewhere in the book and that you've already mentioned in this conversation, and that is that the Qing political system, it did not look like the Ming's. There was there were some differences, and here you're really able to sort of focus and hone in on that and sort of show that off. Um, so, could you talk a little bit about this directly? How would you characterize the approach that the Qing took to dealing with imperial relatives, and just how different was it from the path that the Ming took? So there's these two. The book's divided into these three parts. And one is setting mm-hmm. out the context, and then it's 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 really these the the part two and part three, which is part two being the formation uh, of the state or uh, of this uh, political uh, operation organization, and then part three. So once that's formed, once that outline is there, then it's how do you institutionalize and make sure that these that this structure of which has been put in place is going to be lasting and then continue to. Reproduce itself. Key in that endeavor is, uh, and like like pacifying. I was going to say conquering, but it's it's too military oriented. Uh, But sort of is pacifying the imperial relatives, and the. uh, So what I what I find and 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 what I argue here is that these uh, uh, these. Early modern Eurasian empires had three different ways of dealing with the imperial relatives. So they could they 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 could either uh, ostracize them, as in the in the case of the Ming, where the uh, uh, they they send them they they get them out of politics, they keep them out of the capital, they send them they send them out to the countryside. Another uh, derivative of that is in the Song or like the Ottoman Empire, where they just put them up in palaces and don't let them don't let them in, in, interact. You know, or they could employ them in the service of the state. And so you see this in uh, you see this like in in Ivan the Force, Russia. To some extent, you see this in the in the UN, uh, where they give them appanages, and um, but they end up becoming kind of like independent military governors. Uh, but then in the case of the Qing, which is a fairly uh, unique case, is that they employ them in the service of the state in the, in, in, in the capital, that they put them 
into into government, and they give them give give them positions. Uh, and, and so, so why did this why did this need to happen? It was because the imperial relatives always are uh, a threat to a to a ruler. There's this, there's this tension there that the ruler once he needs the imperial relatives in order to in order to assert himself as a ruler, and you see this very clearly with with Hong Taiji of relying on uh, on his on his brothers and his nephews in order to assert himself uh, and to gain power because these people are trusted and they're also invested in 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 him both as a lineage but also their closeness and their kin ties, but at the same time they're a threat. Because they also see themselves entitled to that to that position, uh, and so the um, but so once you've established you establish power, you've created your organization. Uh, it's really hard then to get rid of these these people because they are they're 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 entrenched. And in the case of the Qing, that Hong Taiji, in order to co opt them, he gave them he gave them positions. So all of all of the imperial relatives, he made presidents of the boards. So you had Sahalian, who was one of his closest, uh, is one of his cousins and one of Hong Taiji's closest uh, um, you know, advisors and and uh, confidants, uh, was made head of the board of rites. He knew nothing about ritual rites, and uh, and it didn't matter because like the, the the vice presidents ran things. But he was he was set up there in that position, and that gave him it gave him a status, and it also gave him a certain amount of influence and power. So influence over policy, and then uh, and then power within the the organization. Uh, and so this was the case for all of these relatives who who help Hong, Hong Taiji that they had positions in the in the government, uh, and it was then hard to get to, to 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 get rid of these people. Hong Taiji didn't quite know what know what to do with them, uh, to the extent that they were they were they were they were giving problems to other administrators or things. He might chastise them, but by and large, he kind of ignored them and. And left them alone as long as they were not posing a direct threat to him, and he can continue to rely on them for his own purposes. And of course, immediately it was it was continuing, continuing conquest. Uh, but once he died, then there was a struggle for power, uh, and at that point, all the rel- that there were relatives who saw themselves as entitled to that throne that Hong Taiji had, had, had vacated. We don't really know what happened. Uh, there's a double. There's a number of different narratives about what happened, but but there's a a, a compromise which is made. Whereas Hong Taiji's youngest son, uh, who's what like six or seven, he's placed placed on the throne, and then uh, to Hong Taiji's uh, brother, you know, two of two of his his relatives who both saw themselves entitled to the throne decide they're going to rule jointly, and this is Dorgan and. And Jurgalong, uh, and of course they continue to struggle struggle amongst uh, amongst themselves. Uh, but this the question still remains open about how to deal. So it's a problem of succession, but then also with the relatives who are spread out within the within within the bureaucracy, and they continue to pose pose a problem of uh, of disruption, and they're they're forming factions, and they're 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 manipulating other factions, and they're they're trying to get each other jailed, or 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 at times even. Uh, erupting into physical violence with with each uh, with each other, and it's 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 destabilizing. It's destabilizing the politics, and it's also has a potential to threaten the entire Qing op- operation. So what ends up happening is that they form this court of the imperial clan that's Ongren Fu in order to 
deal with the imperial relatives. So, and this is modeled on the Ming. Ming had this this organization called the Zongrenfu as well, and the Zongrenfu in the Ming uh, is is fairly innocuous organization. It's used that they, they they send the imperial relatives out to the provinces. They put them up in palaces. They can't leave. Uh, and the Zongrenfu just sort of make sure that they're 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 in place and not doing anything. Much different in the Qing that they designed this this Zongrenfu in order to shuttle the imperial relatives off to office to employ them in the service of the state. So they both train them in military uh, and in civil arts, as well uh, as give as finding offices for them for them to fulfill. And so this then becomes the the uh, the Inuit for the imperial relatives to be employed in the state. Nice. And one, you have a phrase in this section where you say that uh, Ming relatives sulked in isolation, Qing relatives agitated in office, which I thought <laughs> really encapsulated sort of the two different um, uh, kinds of relatives that these two um um, that these two uh, imperial households have to sort of deal with, right? Um, great. So that takes us then to chapter seven, uh, where we come back to dress and we glossed over it before, but it, this, this has come up before. There's a lot of clothing in this book. Um, and chapter seven begins with, again, Chinese memorialists in the 1650s um, who start to say that the emperor needs to change his dress. That they saw it as they saw it, um, the Manchu emperor needed to um, use the legitimizing tradition from the Chinese past and look like a Chinese emperor. He needed to pack up his battle and horse riding ready clothing. Uh, and you stress here that the issue isn't just about Manchu identity or Chinese precedents as such. The issue is about sovereignty. And you've touched on sovereignty a little bit before. And, you know, the question is what the Qing sovereign was supposed to look like. Could you talk a little bit about that that distinction there and why, you know, the sovereignty is really the key for you. Yeah. So all the stuff about ethnicity, I, I don't, I don't discount. Uh, I just, I, I thought that in addition to that, there was also these, these, these other, these other questions. So those people who deal with the, the, the Manchu ethnicity, that's one line of inquiry. I wanted to take a slightly different track and inquire about, uh, not culture, not ethnicity, but uh, but but about ideas of the state, sort of these different conceptions uh, of rule and and what that meant. And so, what I find with these uh, with these memorialists, who are these Chinese guys, right after the Shringer Emperor takes the throne, so that's you know, Hong Taiji's youngest son, he finally comes finally comes of age, comes to power, he takes the throne, and so there's all these memorials that start going out and says, okay, so we've had a successful succession, more or less. Uh, that we're 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 conquering China. The Ming is is on the run and and pretty defeated. And you're now going to be ruling over Chinese subjects. And particular problem at the time is the is the Jiangnan elite, these literati in the south, and uh, they are rejecting the fact of being ruled by barbarians, these outsiders who are who are coming in. Uh, and so what you need to do is is make yourself a Chinese emperor. And how you make yourself a Chinese emperor is by looking like a Chinese emperor, put on the clothes and the, and, and the hat. And they grounded their arguments in this very long tradition of metaphysical uh, discussions about what it meant to wear the proper clothing and wear the proper caps uh, in looking like a looking like a, a, a Chinese emperor. And you know, qu- quoting Yao and Shun, 
these mythical emperors from the past. And, you know, if they had that their, they had on their robes and they had on their cap and, and the whole universe was, uh, was, was in order. And so what they had in mind, of course, was, uh, was the Ming emperor. All these memorialists had been Ming officials that they, as soon as Beijing fell, that they surrendered to the Qing and, and they they were employed because they, they knew how to run things. Uh, and so they, they had this idea of these long flowing, uh, ornate robes that the Ming emperors wore. And they thought if the Qing emperor could do that, then he would be legitimized in the eyes of the, of the Chinese elite who were being conquered. And then you wouldn't have this, you wouldn't have this holdout. And then the, the Manchus would be able to successfully rule, rule China. Of course, the Man- of course, the Manchu emperors were not ready to, to, to submit to this, that they, they didn't see themselves as Chinese, nor did they see themselves as just another, as just another Chinese dynasty. And Hong Taiji had talked about this. Uh, he, he had the precedent of the Jin of the the, the early Jin on, on on his mind, uh, who had too readily adopted Chinese ways, and they quickly fell. And Hong Taiji spoke out about this. Uh, he said that the, the the Jin adopted Chinese ways, and they became Chinese, and they lost their soul, and then their dynasty quick, quickly collapsed. And the Shringer Emperor was uh, was very he, he was he, he was very aware of this, and also resisted. Uh, completely adopting the, completely adopting the, the 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 Chinese robes, but again, what what is at stake here was more than it's more than just the dress. It was sort of what the dress represented and the type of the type of rule, the type of of empire that the Qing would come to come to create and wanted to govern. Right. And the question of sort of dealing with um, you, t- you say that, you know, these these memorialists, they're all they have in mind the Ming emperors. So this issue of sort of dealing with uh, what the Ming did certainly continues in the final chapter of this book, chapter eight, which is where you look at um, the compilation of the Qing Huidian, the administrative code of the Qing dynasty. And they are you spend a lot of time in this book talking about what the Ming looked like and the problems that the Qing had when they were using it, um, reasons that it sort of fell short, didn't adapt to the, didn't map on to the new uh, administrative reality of the Qing, which was different. Um, and you say that the compilation of this book, the Qing Huidian, marks the end of a phase of early Qing state formation. And as such, it, you know, it closes your book, your book, which is about Qing state formation ends with it. So I'm interested in how you decided to end your book here. Was this sort of the way you always saw this story folding out? Is this something that you came to realize that this would be the natural end? How did that sort of come about? The I had this question constantly about how to where where to end, where would be the proper mm-hmm. place to end, and would it be would it just kind of would it just kind of peter out? into the into into the Chenlong year into the Chenlong years yeah. uh, but uh, but it, it became clear that much of the materials that I was looking at the the, the documents from the, the 1630s and 40s were being placed then into the into the Huidian, uh usually in a brief in abbreviated form and this is the first the first Huidian, the the, the Huidian, which was published in 1690. And that it was the Huidian which had 
attempted to articulate the order of which had been had been formed. And so you, all of the precedents from the Suedian went back to the to the early Qing for the, the setting out of the order, the setting out of, of what the emperor should do, of how the bureaucracy, the all the administrators should act, the dress and, and all that. They would all articulate these precedences from all these the, these cases uh, which I was which I was exploring. And so it seemed that something was happening there at that time where there was a decision made in order to put this uh, to to put this down uh, and to articulate the the state as it had come to come to form. But then there was also this question. So this this was kind of contradictory as what I was looking at from what we know, which is or from what we thought we knew, or the traditional understanding was that the Qing Huidian copied the Ming Ming Huidian. The Ming had this Ming had this Huidian, and it was uh, and, it, and the, the the Qing just put, picked it up and continue and reproduced it in their own image and slapped the name Qing Huidian instead of Ming Huidian on it. Uh, and it turns out that that's not quite the quite the case. So then, what was the Huidian? What was it doing? Well, as what I argue is that it was uh, putting down in law what had been forming as fact over the past 60 years. And so that seemed to be the natural place to, to, uh, to, to end what I call this first phase of the formation of the Qing state. And Kanxi in his preface kind of says as much, uh, or at least I interpret him as, 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 saying, as saying as much. He talks about the, the enterprise that his grandfather or his great-grandfather Nurhachi had, had formed. And now, you know, he's putting all this, this order down into the, in, in, into the Qing Huidian in order to inform the structure of the state. Great. So it was all the Kangxi Emperor <laughs> in terms of who decided your book would end here. Yeah. That's one way of putting it, although I didn't think of it in that way. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So with that, we come to both the end of your book and also our conversation about it. And again, as I've mentioned a couple times here, there is so much more in this book that we have not touched on. So many more hats and robes and umbrellas and other fascinating details. It's full of these rich, rich, rich moments that, again, we just didn't get a chance to touch on here. But now that you're finished with this book, um, what are you working on now? I am working on the development of the Ming and Qing economy. So this book is about political domination. There's a lot of ritual in it, of course, and it's the the, the Board of Rights, which is in charge of all these ceremonies and, and, and things. But I, but I also see that this book about political political domination and the construction of a political order, how that uh, how that developed and what that looked like. And I want to now I want to uh, look at the development of of the economy or uh, to put it in this language, the e- economic domination. So I'm looking at lending lending institutions in the Ming and Qing, essentially how people had access to money and what they spent it on. And so it's beginning with the the quickening of the commercial economy in the Ming around the 15th and 16th century and probably take it up into the 19th 19th century, looking at the different lending institutions which developed the circulation of money, how people and and how people were investing it in 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 the Ming and Qing and the consequences and this had for the larger economic development of late imperial China. So with the Ming, you're moving yet again one step backwards. Yes, I could say that. 
So yeah, I'm guessing the I project will. after that will be even further. Back. I will end up in the Joe eventually. Right? <laughs> you will end up in the Joe. Eventually, your classmates were correct. <laughs> well, that sounds fascinating. And I look forward to reading that. And again, all of your writings on the Joe that I'm sure will follow. Thank you again so much for taking the time to talk oh, about Oh, yeah, it was my pleasure. Great to talk with you, Sarah.